0: Listener warning, within this episode of the Inspired Equity podcast, there is frequent use of bad language. Please only continue listening to this episode if you're happy to do so. Hello and welcome to the Inspired Equity podcast. My name is Richard Puthera and I'm here with my co-host, business partner and wife, Nina. We are the founders of Inspired Equity, the London-based investment business that specialises in property acquisition and development. And between us, we are world record holders, international investors, prolific networkers, speakers and coaches, and it is our absolute pleasure to introduce our podcast. On this show, we'll be discussing all aspects of successful property investing, covering everything from simple buy-to-let properties to multi-million pound development. We'll be interviewing industry leaders and hosting live Q&As with expert panels and keeping you up to date with the ever-changing and exciting world of property. Tonight, I have the distinct pleasure of introducing you to the man behind the brands of property developers, construction companies and super brands such as Cartier and Christian Dior. For his entire life, Steve has been surrounded by creativity. He won European Young Artist of the Year Award, He's worked on films including Star Wars and Raiders of the Lost Ark and has even designed the London flag. In 1985, Steve founded his branding agency, Steve Edge Design and in the last 30 plus years, he's worked with some of the world's biggest names. Steve has an ability to make people feel really great and with a job title of profit, madman and wanderer and being the world's greatest optimist, dressing for the party every single day, I'm thoroughly looking forward to hearing Steve speak. Steve, welcome to Ironman, thank you so much for joining us this evening.
1: Thank you very much Richard, well it's so lovely to see so many faces and uh, especially in this mad zombie flesh-eating world that we're in at the moment, but we will one day be hugging and shaking hands again and here, here I am tonight talking from Luckily, my home in Shoreditch and, and Shoreditch has been a place where I've been for many, many, many years. And, and what's ironic about Shoreditch is that my, uh, when I met my wife many, many years ago, we fancied living in a loft. And, and ironically, uh, we knew the area very well. My dad worked in Smithfield Meat Market. I was very fortunate uh, at a very early age, uh, uh, at four years old discovering glitter, magic markers and plastic scissors and things have never changed, funny enough. I skip into my studio every day with that. And also being diagnosed very luckily uh, 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 of being severely dyslexic and all sorts of other things that, that you know, uh, uh, would give people a lot of problems. However, the glitter and the magic markers certainly looked after me. And my father being a very bohemian, uh, uh, Patted me on my back and allowed me to be creative in a way that maybe no one else would have done. Um, here I am, like I say, living in our loft in Shoreditch. Uh, one of the greatest deals I think ever was that we we wanted to find somewhere in Shoreditch when, you know, over 40 years ago, you came to Shoreditch to get killed. No one wanted to live in Shoreditch. It was a place that was dodgy. It was definitely a, a, a no-go area. Um, but but. But we wanted to live in a big space. And so my wife and I, we, we looked around Shoreditch. And, and luckily for me, I'd, I'd moved next door to a becoming one of my great friends, a lawyer. Now it's a result, to move next door to a lawyer. Because actually, especially when he becomes your friend, because he then looks after you. And, and being creative, obviously being kind of out there, that he felt that he should kind of take charge of me. So I was very fortunate. I had two dads. One, my father, who worked in the meat market, who was an artist, and Ivor Montlake, who was a super lawyer. And both of them gave me everything I wanted. Anyway, it came to the day when we wanted to buy a loft in Shoreditch, buy the building. And we went, uh, uh, we were told to go and see this man called James Goff. James Goff, he was a property guy, um, had a company that nobody heard of called Sterling Ackroyd, and he said and go and see this guy. Anyway, I went and saw this guy, James Goff. He was sitting in a dodgy little office, nobody in there, just a table and a chair. His feet was on the table, and uh, and, he, and he looked at me, he was quite posh, and he said, what do you want? I said, I want, a, I want one of these buildings in Shoreditch, and he went, what one do you want? And I went, hang on a second, I said, that's a big ask. I said, where I come from, if I tell you the one I want and you don't deliver it, I'm going to be really fucked off. He said, no, 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 no. Tell me, what one do you want? I said, all right, let me show you. So we went round the corner and we stood there and I went, I want that one, which is this one I'm in now. And, and he went, okay, leave it with me. I said, hang on a second. You told me I can have it. He went, no, leave it with me. I said, hang on a second. You don't even know who owns it. He said, no, I don't. He said, he said you're not going to shut up. So I'm going to tell you a secret. I don't know who owns it. He said, well, what I'm going to do, I'm going to put a for sale sign on this building that I don't own. And trust me, within two days, the Jewish family will be ringing me going, what the fuck are you doing sticking a for sale sign on my building? And I'll go, do you want to sell it? And they'll go, yeah. Guess what? One day later, he rings me, he goes, we've got it. The building's done. We've sold it. It's your building. So what a result. So we've lived here for over 40 years in Shoreditch. I love it. It's definitely, for me, a great change. A lot of people say to me, Steve, what's it like with all the hipsters and all that? Well, guess what? It's change. You need to have change. If you don't have change, it will die and it becomes stuffy and it becomes stagnant and it dies. You need change. And of course, remember with change, if you don't like it, get out of it. I can always move if you want to, but I love it here and I will always stay here. And of course, very luckily as a kid growing up in this whole area, and my father having a great friend who who diagnosed me as being dyslexic said, I will teach Steve, I will home teach Steve. So it was a right result because one, I was always that peculiar little kid that would have got a lot of aggro, but also being taught from this amazing house. Now, Valerie. Gray was married to a man called Dennis Gray, Um, and Dennis was a great chap and in charge of three publications for IPC magazines. One of them was Practical Boat Builder, one of them was called Practical Homeowner, and one of them was called Practical Woodworker. There's a lot of practical fucking going on there, but what he said was that I would go and have my lessons in the morning with Valerie, and then in the afternoon of four years old, I was allowed to go and work with Dennis. Now, because there was no Apple Macs, no CGI's, there was none of that in those days, it was all about hands. So if Dennis was doing an article on how to build a mirror dinghy, he would make it. He would have to make it in his studio and then photograph it in stages and create that story. So I went, as I said, from four, I used to do my studies in the morning, And in the afternoon, I would go and work with Dennis on a project. Luckily for me, at five years old, my mum bought me a sewing machine. And I had my sewing machine in the studio with Dennis and the workshop. And I would start making my clothes. And the thing about making my own clothes, trousers were difficult. Fuck zips, they were very difficult. But a dress was very easy. So I started making little dresses and they were simple. And I was allowed to be the flower-powered kid in the dress. I was about as fat as that. I had long blonde hair down to the floor, barefoot, and I used to wear dresses. And, of course, being free and happy, um, I grew up in this most amazing, loving environment. My dad, like I said, was at the meat market. So at the meat market, they were all tough boys as well, ex-boxers, professional boxers. All the chaps at the East End that said, Oi, that's Edgy's son. You don't do anything with him. You leave him alone. So I was brought up in this amazing bubble. Um, And then luckily uh, for me, Dennis uh, then gave me my own double page spread in a magazine called Look and Learn. I was 12 years old. And he said, this is your publication. You're going to do a double page spread every month. And then you're going to get paid for it. And I couldn't believe it. I was getting paid for it. So... I had this great opportunity where one month it would be Easter, how to decorate Easter eggs and make Easter cards. The following month, I would design the tortoise hibernation box, how to make sure that your tortoise will survive winter in a big looker-like plywood tortoise with hay in it. And like I said, it was fantastic. Anyway, 13 years old, there was a knock at the door. And that knock at the door was quite frightening because I answered the door and he said, um, uh, uh, is your mum in? Uh, and I looked at him and I went, uh, yeah, one second, who is it? And he went, I need to speak to your mum anyway. It wasn't my mum, it was Valerie. And basically it was the school board man. He, he said that this child has to go to school by law. And that was going to be tricky because, you know, rocking up in a dress at 13 at any school would have been definitely a problem. Uh, Luckily for me, Dennis wrote a letter to a school in Dulwich and I went to this school and I lived in the art department. So at 13, I went to this school and, and I worked in this art department and never did any other thing apart from art because unfortunately, you know, I've never read a book in my life because I can't. It's absolutely impossible. It just doesn't go in. So I was very fortunate and I grew up in the art department and at 15 the head of art entered me in for European Artist of the Year competition. And there was three categories. There was a 15 to 18, 18 to 24, and over 24. And luckily, I won all three categories. And there was a guy there, all the big design agencies, all the big boys looking for, you know, I suppose, you know, the hot young kids. Um, and he said to me, would you come and work with us? And I'm 15. And I went, yeah. So I went and worked for this amazing design agency where they had the Muppet account. They had looked after all the Muppets, um, and I was then introduced to Jim Henson and Frank Oz, and that was just incredible. So after a year of working at this design agency at 16, Jim Henson said, can Steve come and work with us full time at ATV Studios on the Muppet Show, which was just incredible. Every week we'd have Debbie Harry, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin and of course I was a child I thought I was terribly grown up but I was obviously very well looked after and, uh, and, and, and and very spoiled so so I had an amazing time working on the Muppet Show and then one day I went in and there was the most terrifying day when when Jim Henson said to me I was coming up to my 17th birthday. He said, Steve, there's a man over the road who wants to meet you. And I went, why are you getting rid of me? He said, I never said that. I said, yes, you have. I said, where I come from, that's getting rid of you. He said, no, he said, there's an amazing opportunity that's come up. This guy loves your work and he wants to meet you. You must go and see him. I said, okay, who have I got to go and see? So you got to go and see this man called George Lucas. And I went, who the fuck is George Lucas? I said, I have never heard of him. What is he? He said, oh, he's a producer. He's made a film called American Graffiti and he wants to meet you. Anyway, I went over the road, went into this very posh uh, 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 um, uh, um, uh, uh, Elstree Studios and went up into this big office. Two very nice women, his PA, took me upstairs and I went in this room and there he was, George Lucas. And he said, come and sit down. I sat down and he said, Steve, he said, I love all your work. He said, I want you to work with us. So I went, what do you want me to do? He went, I want you to work in the art department. I went, wow. I said, can I see the art department? Now, remember, I grew up as a kid in the art department, four years old to 13 years old. That's all I did. I worked in a studio and a workshop making things. And, of course, this studio was no different. I was taken into this huge carpentry shop. Like, I've never seen a carpentry shop like it. A spray booth department where I could spray anything I wanted. There was plastic vacuum form machines. Everything was, you made it, you could create it, and you could, there you were in this incredible environment. I came back, I sat back down with him, he said, what do you reckon? I went, fuck. I said, that's the best art department I've ever seen. He said, said, so have you got any questions? I said, yeah. I said, what's the film going to be about? He said, oh, it's going to be the greatest science fiction film ever. I went, what's it going to be called? He said, it's going to be called Star Wars. I went, wow. I went, that is a great name. I love that name. He said, do you like it? I went, that is the fucking bollocks. I said, that is the best name I've heard. Anyway, that was it. So I worked on Star Wars. I then worked on Empire Strikes Back. We had the most amazing time. Um, You know, my briefs every morning was incredible. We sat around a big table with all these incredible creative directors. The main creative director was a man called Norman Reynolds. I was just barely 17. There was people probably the youngest above me was like 25. So they was like really old, really old people. I mean, like fucking old. I was thinking, whoa. And there was a lot of dead people, like 40 years old and 50 years old, you know. So, so I was thinking, wow, this is really interesting. And, uh, and the briefs was always incredible because, you know, Norman Reynolds would create this, give this brief and then he'll go, okay, Steve. He said, uh, there's been a Zion cannon attack on the Dagabar system. And I want you to go and make sure that the stormtroopers lost the battle. I didn't even bat a fucking eyelid. I didn't even ask a question. I knew exactly what that should look like. And I'd go down to stage seven and I'd get my soldering iron and my airbrush, knock the fuck out of all these different stormtroopers to make sure that they lost the fucking Zion cannon attack. And I just had this amazing time. And, you know, working with all these incredible people, And then there was a film, there was a great film that they asked me to work on then, and it was Raiders of the Lost Ark. And, you know, what was interesting about Raiders is that, uh, uh, you know, I grew up with animals, you know. Here we are growing up in London, in the rough part of London, and my dad being a a great artist, an, an amazing artist, but in those days, you know, he had to work. He had all these sons to look after, not like now, you can, now you can get, you know, grants. But when he was an artist, he had to support his family. Um, and so my dad would work incredibly hard at the meat market, but he loved always his art. So, you know, ironically, he was an outsider artist. You know, if you look up outsider artists, these are a lot of famous artists that have grown up working all their lives. And then being discovered as great artists. And, and it's an incredible thing, outsider artists. Anyway, my dad was definitely one of the outsider artists. And, uh,
2: and of course, what he loved, though, he loved
1: animals. So we grew up with animals. And one of the animals that I grew up with was a pet chimpanzee called Primo. And we had this chimpanzee. My father had swapped it for a BSA Bantam motorbike that he'd had. And his mate had got hold of this chimpanzee. Because in those days, back early in the 60s, there was no danger, um, and these these licenses that you have to have for dangerous animal acts. It was a it was a like no license. You could buy what you want in a place called Club Row here, just off a brick lane in Shoreditch. You could buy a camel, you could buy a goat, you could buy a tiger cab, a, a cub. I mean, you you can't believe it. Anyway, my dad loved animals. Anyway, so we had a pet chimpanzee called Primo which I loved and Primo loved me. And we was, we, we was always together. And of course, Primo was incredibly funny. My grandmother lived with us and my grandmother loved to show off and invite people around for Sunday lunch. And Primo would sit at a dinner table with us with a knife and fork, upright. And they could not believe what they're seeing, a fucking chimpanzee here in, in London, sitting at a dinner table. and And after the meal, my grandmother used to get a packet of sweets and pass the sweets around. And Primo used to wait, and he was boss-eyed, and big fingers like broom handles, and he used to get the packet of sweets, and people used to go, it's amazing. And Primo would look in the packet, it's amazing. And they'd grab one of those sweets, look at it, it's amazing. And they'd grab the other end of the sweet, boss-eyed, and start to pull it apart. And on cue, he'd get hold of the sweet, throw the sweet away, and eat the fucking wrapper. That's what he used to do, always on cue. He used to climb up the side of the house, Primo, up the guttering, get all the roof slates and start chucking the slates into the street. <laughs> and, and of course, none of that PC bollocks that we have now. I'm going to sue you. All people ducking, whoa, Primo nearly got me there, whoa. And it was never a dull moment. So, and my father had snakes, he had reptiles, anyway. When it came to Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, I'd already got my dad involved in Empire Strikes Back for Snakes because George Lucas wanted some snakes. And I said, My dad's got snakes. Anyway, he supplied the snakes. And then when it came to Raiders, my dad supplied all the snakes. It was also my pet monkey, Snuff. That little monkey was my pet monkey, that black cap capuchin that was in the film. And also, ironically, while I was working in the art department, the stunt woman wouldn't go in the snake pit. She said, I can't go in the snake pit. I'm terrified. So Spielberg, who was director then, came and got me from the art department and I had my leg shaved and I wore the party dress and I'm the one in the snake pit. So next time you see Raiders of the Lost Ark, I'm the one in the snake pit. Um, and I'll, if anybody wants to see some pictures, by all means, ask me and I'll send you some pictures of me in the snake pit of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And so... You know, I was very fortunate. I I decided that I'd had enough of uh, uh, films and then I wanted to go and do my own thing. And, And I was always interested in branding and I was always interested in communication because with my severe dyslexia, you know, I go into a railway station and it's gobbledygook. I mean, gobbledygook. But however, luckily I was brought up and I had a personality where I was always talking and never feared about asking questions and was totally open about my disability, which I don't see as a, a, a disability, but a great advantage. That what I do when I go into a railway station, all I do is ask the first person, excuse me, can you help me? I'm dyslexic. Now they think you're really disabled, they think you can't walk. They get hold of your arm. Come with me, where do you want to go? I love it. They take, I'm going to Dorking. No worry, they take me through to the barrier take me, sit me on the train, tell everybody on the train, this man is dyslexic, make sure he gets off at Dorking. Okay, I love it. I sit there, I can relax, and then all of a sudden, some very nice person will go, we're here, we're at Dorking. Yay, thank you very much. So, you know, I've always actually enjoyed this. So I knew that when I was going to set my studio up, that I wanted to communicate to everybody. There is 1.5 million people in England alone that are dyslexic and all the opportunities that they that that they miss out on because websites are so full of information and remember there's a lot of important dyslexic people out there if you look at the Richard Bransons of the world and the people that are usually big entrepreneurs they 're usually dyslexic so why aren 't you communicating with them so I soon created a formula about instead of this thing about being informational, for me, the power of a brand is that you want to be inspirational. So if your website is inspirational instead of informational, you're going to win because you're going to spoon feed that information to people that people want. They really want it. They get it. Whereas before they go on a website, too much information. You're throwing five balls at everybody. You drop all of them. Who are they? What do they do? I've got no idea what they... And therefore, game over. You've lost the biggest opportunity that you can have by your website is the most boring pile of fucking shit on the planet because you're not communicating to everybody and you're not communicating to people. It is about being lateral, not literal. And the key to it is that you're keeping it simple, clean, easy to use. So we all know about the power of the brand and the brand for me was always that thing. Cause I always loved brands. I, I always had my hero brands and, and, and being a child and loving fishing, I would always aspire to certain brands. Like there was a brand in Pau Mau called Hardee's, but the key to the power of the brand is where did branding come from? You know, brands come from way back, you know, the, the, The first logo ever found was 5,000 years ago in a cave painting in south of France. And there is a painting of a bull, a bison, and underneath the bison is a logo. It's the person's mark, that mark that they wrote by that bison to say, this is my bison. And that's where it started. And then ironically, it took a long time to kind of filter through. And then the Romans come along. A bit like that Monty Python film, what did the Romans ever do for us? But but what they actually did, the Romans, (coughs) they created the value of the brand. Because up until then, people were being sold products that were out of date. People were sold products that were dangerous to eat. People were sold products dangerous to drink. And in the end, the Romans said, look, we want to know the contents, what's in it, how old it is, and who made it. Who was the, who was the owner of this product? And that's the value of the brand. They, gave, they created brand value. And then it carries on, this brand value. And all of a sudden, it comes to the 12th century when knights in shining armor was fighting battles. And where is the brand? There, they were killing each other. There was no brand. There was no team. They all looked the same in this fucking silver armor. All of a sudden, one would say, "You just killed one of our own." Hang on a second. What are we going to do? We need to create. We need to create this whole thing about our, our brand, heraldic shields. We need to create our own logo. We need to create our own color scheme. And that's what they did. They created their own heraldic badges. And that's where the brand then really started. And then from the 12th century, it it started to come into from down into the 17th century where brands, it kind of diluted. It was about luxury. It was about aristocracy and It wasn't mass production. It was you wanted to know who made your hat. Lock Hats made my hat. Savile Row suits, the Purdy gun. These were all brands that were only if you were in the know that you actually knew what this true luxury was. And then what shook that up all of a sudden was the Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution came along in the 19th century. And all of a sudden shook that all up. And there was no longer about one offs. It was about mass production of thousands of products. And how do we sell this above our competitors? And there was one company that did it better than anyone else. And they did it better than anyone else because as always, you've heard that corny expression, thinking outside the box. How do you think outside the box? How do we find the twist? That twist that I'm always bringing to the clients that I work with is the twist. It's about finding that truth, that authenticity, the brand story, the story. We remember good stories, not bad stories. And so the one that made it was Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola created this product,
2: brown
1: sugar shit water. But guess what? It had a bit of cocaine in it, so actually it wasn't too bad in the day but then they had a problem because everybody started ripping it off everybody could make coca-cola globally they could make coca-cola so what did coca-cola do they didn't they they knew their product was great everybody loved coca-cola but how did they create the brand around coca-cola they created a bottle that was so expensive to produce that no one could produce a bottle like a coca-cola bottle It was manufactured in the thickest glass, in the clearest glass of its day, and the value was actually, you were buying the Coca-Cola bottle. The product cost nothing, but that's how Coca-Cola created Coca-Cola. They were incredibly amazing and created that in an incredible difficult time. And then, of course, one of the great stories for me was that Enzo Ferrari in 1923 a young man walked into a funny little Italian town and there was this amazing woman called Madame Baraka. And Madame Baraka was connected to the family of Enzo Ferrari. And she said, Enzo, what are you doing? What are you going to do with your life? And he said, well, Madame Baraka, I'm going to make a car. I'm going to make a car so great that everybody would really aspire to buying one of my Ferraris. They want one of these cars. And she said, that's amazing. She said, but I'm telling you what I'm going to do. And he knew, Enzo knew that her son was a great war hero. He was in the, uh, he was in the Air Force, the Italian Air Force, and he was an amazing pilot. And he was one of the great heroes of, it, uh, 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 of Italy. And unfortunately, he got shot down when he was a young man and killed. But she said, you know what? My son was so amazing and I want him to live on. And you know what he painted on the side of his plane, which he said, she said that he loved. He painted a black rampant horse, a horse that was on the side of my plane, on, on his plane. And she said, you know, Enzo, I'm going to give you this mark, this badge this amazing horse because I know it will bring success and it will always be in memory of my son who was a great hero and he said yes thank you and he took that and of course like I say that story is truth is the truth and of course look what happened because the power of the brand he actually created it so we all know about this thing about how important your brand is And of course, brands, it's not just about a pretty picture. Pretty pictures don't work. A pretty picture will work on a business card. That's it. Unfortunately, you can't even give one of those out now, but a business card is a thing that it will work on. But then you try and reduce it to go onto a pen or a cufflink or project it on the side of a building. It starts to lose its integrity it starts to break up, and therefore there is no brand identity. And that's the problem with pretty pictures. The key to creating a brand and identity is that it can be used in all applications. It's very easy to use, it must be simple. Because how often have you guys been involved with your own brand identity, and at the last minute you have to stick it on an advert because you've been given a free ad in a publication, or you're trying to produce a a prequel document in the middle of the night to get it out there, that where do we put our brand? Where do we put our logo? All of a sudden, it's not your brand because it's difficult to use. It's difficult to use because in that application, you have to reinvent the wheel all the time. The key to it is to keep it incredibly simple. If we look at that Mercedes badge, the Mercedes badge, whether you like that mark or not, you know full well it's luxury, it's German, it's reliable, it's the mark. And that's the power of the brand when you get that mark working right. And of course, when I talk about being literal and lateral, I mean, when I was over 25 years ago, um I was called into a brand because before that, when I'd set my company up, all of a sudden, I was very fortunate. Cartier came to me. Christian Dior came to me. I branded Fortnum & Mason. I branded It's been there since 1676. I branded Hamley's Toy Store. And then all of a sudden, one day, out of all these luxury brands that I'm working with, I get a phone call from a man called Paul Chandler. Paul Chandler was president of Skanska and I went to his office in Dysart Street, literally next door to where I live here in Shoreditch and, uh, and he said, Steve, he said, I need your help. And I said, what is it? He said, we're not winning as Skanska as much business as we should. I mean, it's quite <laughs> mad. He said, we're not winning as much business as we should. And I said, okay. And I never, you know, I've never seen a, one of these tender documents. He went, I want you to help me with a tender. I went, all right, well, show me one. And he he comes in with this dodgy looking fucking pile of shit that I've ever seen in my life. I mean, it was just unbelievable. It was like, fuck, are you serious? It was so I opened the first page, and of course, although I can't read like read, read, my eye picks up on all sorts of things immediately. So I sussed it. The line length was so long. On this page, on this contents page, that anybody who could read clearly, by the time you track to the next line and track to the next line, because the leading and the typography was so poor, subconsciously, because brands are about subconscious, you buy brands because you love it. It wipes your for, uh, you, uh, uh, I'm sorry, your your uh, uh, your forehead. It. It wipes it when you walk in. When I walk into Gucci, I fucking love it. Everything I go in there, my brow is white. It's white because it's desirable. You want it. And that's the power of the brand. You don't question a brand. If you question the brand, you know there's a problem. And if there's a question with the brand, then you ain't going to win the business because people are questioning. So straight away, you look at this line, length, and people are thinking subconsciously, Fuck, what a difficult client to work with, this Skanska. It's so difficult subconsciously because they're trying to read a document that they need to read. I then went in to the section dividers. I couldn't find a section divider. Impossible. I couldn't find a section divider. Eventually, I found one. Already, again, is an issue. Now, remember, you guys are all in the premiership. You're all good. You're all polished. You're all amazing at what you're doing. And the competition is great. It's healthy. And so therefore, guess what wins the premiership? One point wins the premiership. Not that. When it comes to business, people think it's that. It's not. One point wins. Wins the game. So all these one points were important. So the line length, far too long, subconscious, difficult clients. You go to the section divider. I can't find what I'm looking for. Someone wants to know how long it takes to build it. Someone wants to know how much it costs. Someone wants to know. I can't find it. Subconsciously, another point. You're down two points. And then what well, I couldn't believe, because it's the first time I was introduced to the construction industry. First ever, Scanska. I turned to the back to the CVs and there's a photograph of a murderer and a rapist and a fucking pedophile looking at me. I'm thinking, whoa, are you serious? You think that photography's all right? You think that fucking photography of Charlie that was taken in 1972 at the back of a dodgy apartment in the Barbican Centre looking like a fucking madman is going to be okay for his CV? Because, again, subconsciously, everybody goes, fucking hell, are you serious? I'm working with him or her or that. Are you fucking serious? We all do it. Nobody admits it, but it's about being confident. It's about having that amazing moment that actually I want to work with these fucking people, not fuck, they're going to kill me if I get it wrong. So what we did, we got rid of all these photographs of the fucking murderer, the rapist, and the pedophile. And we created a photograph of the whole team. We photographed the team. The fucking team. They're the people that are going to build it. Everybody loves to photograph when you're with your mates and you feel more relaxed. Nobody likes an individual portrait being taken because nobody likes their picture. We photographed the team. We still had all their names. And then we managed to create this document where I went back to the beginning. We made the line leads, not that fucking long. We made it in three columns. We brought the leading up. So even somebody 80 years old will be able to read it clearly and easily. And even people with learning difficulties will be able to work through it and make sure that they can read it. We found a a system that this section divider can break out easy. You can take out the bit you want, the bit you want to look at. Like I said, we photographed a team. I managed to find a material that matched the front of the building that they were wanting to win. Anyway, we created this document. It was on the table when all the architects went in to choose the one. And Richard Rogers picked up ours and said, this is a breath of fresh air, he said. And then they, beat, then they built the gherkin. They won the fucking gherkin. It was the document that we created that was the one that... That was an incredible bit of information that we managed to spoon-feed to people. And so when I mention this thing about the twist, bringing a twist, the twist is bringing true difference bringing something that's fun. Remember, fun doesn't matter. If you you see a company that's having fun, I guarantee good work comes from it, always. Fun doesn't degrade anything apart from says, what an amazing company to do business with and how professional are they that everything is a happy, amazing experience. And so when it comes to this thing about being lateral and literal, again, I'm now being working now because then I branded Kia. I branded, work with weights. I then did a company with Wilmot Dixon. I then just recently branded the 150th rebrand of 150 year rebrand for Sir Robert McAlpine. So I love this construction industry. And we work on all sorts of different projects, branding buildings, branding people, branding construction companies, branding consultancies. i branded a very nice company called Cast with Mark Farmer, which is a very interesting consultancy. Um, And I'll come back to Cast because it's about stories. It's always about creating stories. Brands are about stories. And if you can create a story that's authentic and you're proud of, I guarantee good work comes from it. So what we have, thank you, darling. So what we have, we have this. I got invited. I, I won this, uh, uh, every, every year they have the World Dyslexic Institute Award, global event where you get, where they choose the, the dyslexic. Anyway, I won this World Institute Dyslexic Award. And it's a big deal. It was at the Savoy, 500 people in the world, all the big corporates, all the big companies. They all come to this because there's learning difficulties in every company, every bank, even the Army, Navy and Air Force are there at this event because there's learning difficulties there. Gabby Logan and Kenny Logan, you might have met Kenny because he's in the business and he's severely dyslexic. Anyway, they gave my award and I do my spiel. And then afterwards, everybody comes up to you on the table. I'm on my table. They all come up. The head of the British Army comes over. Steve, congratulations. He says, how would you like to come to order shop and blow some shit up? I went, oh, yes, please. The head of Savile Row comes over. Steve, congratulations. Can I make you a suit? What, a free one? Yes, Too fucking right, brother. Yes, please. (laughs) Then a guy comes over. He says, Steve, I'm called Adrian Atwood and I'm a restoration company and we're restoring Nelson's column. (coughs) He said, and we're going to have a dinner party for 15 people on the top of Nelson's column. (laughs) He said, would you like to join us? I went, yeah, I'd love to. I love Nelson. I've always loved Nelson. When I branded this company called Lock Hats, 1676 they made nelson's hat and wellington's hat and invented the bowler hat so i love this old brand and now i'm going to go on top of nelson's column so the day come i get on top of nelson's column nelson there he is he's like huge his feet are like eight feet long it's like whoa and you look up at this big pair of bollocks. They gave him the biggest pair of bollocks ever, Nelson. You can't see him from down there, but when you're up there, trust me, fuck, he's there. And then Adrian Atwood, he says to me, "Steve," he said, "thank you for coming for this dinner." He said, "um, you know, we're very proud of restoring Nelson." I went, "Mate," I said, "you're a restoration company," <coughs> I said. How amazing is that? I said, probably the most iconic statue in Europe. In Europe. Don't tell the fucking French that. But trust me, in Europe. that it is incredible. And he goes, thank you. I know. And then he points down to the National Portrait Gallery. He said, and I restored National Portrait Gallery. I went, whoa. He said, and I've done Greenwich Naval College, Hampton Court windsor castle nobody's heard of us i went okay he said well so would you come and see me in three weeks time and see what we can do together i went, yeah anyway I had the most amazing dinner party on top of nelson's column it was fabulous three weeks later i rock up in his company and he goes steve yes he says so He gets his 15-year-old letterhead. (laughs) I mean, fuck me, you can't believe it. Can you imagine? 15-year-old restoration company. And he says, Steve, what do you think of that? Now, you can't be rude. To my mates, I am rude. I go, that's shit. But I can't say shit to him. But what you can say is, well, it's served you well up until now, right? It's served you well up until now. He says, thank you. So on the top, it said, David Ball Restoration. And underneath it, this is where it comes in the construction industry, why I love to shake up this construction industry, which is, without doubt, the best industry in the world. And I'll come to that why, and I'll answer it. Is, it's, it was so literal. I mean, literal is not the word. So underneath David Ball Restoration, it said brickwork, leadwork, stonework, copperwork. Zinc work, slit your fucking wrist work. I went, whoa. He went, no, 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 no. It's not only that. He said, because we're called David Ball Restoration, people ring up and they go, can I speak to David Ball? And my secretary said, no, sorry, he's dead. I went, no wonder nobody's heard of you. You're fucking dead. He said, yes, he said, but I'm worried about name changes. I said, trust me, brother. Don't be worried about name changes when you're dead. I said, look, David Ball restoration is DBR. DBR. DBR, people that know who you are, there's no problem. People that don't know who you are, they don't give a fuck as long as you deliver. Anybody chooses a name anywhere to work with, and as long as you deliver, you deliver. I said, my problem is not that. That's easy, DBR. Nobody's going to ring up anymore and ask for fucking David Ball. I said, the key to it is we need to get rid of the brickwork, leadwork, stonework, copperwork, zincwork, slip your fucking wristwork. We came up with DBR, making sure the past has a future. Now, all of a sudden, it's a whole different ballgame. DBR, making sure the past has a future. Because when you ask any of their people before, because it's about the power of the brand and that consistency. Can you imagine asking somebody, oh, what do you do at DBR. (laughs) Brickwork, work, work stonework, copperwork, fucking, I've already forgotten already. <coughs> but they go, oh, we make sure the past has a future. And I go, fuck, that's amazing. You make sure the past has a future. It transposes across all buildings, residential, statues, whatever it is. And we created this brand. I found the god of restoration, Janus, double headed. Looks to the future, looks to the past. We chopped his chin, his nose off, the one that looks from the past, the new one's fully restored. DBR, making sure the past has a future. And of course, guess what? One black and white banner we do, one on a scaffold. DBR, making sure the past has a future. Guy drives past it, rings them. Because of that phone call, they won. Now, they're doing the 25-year restoration of the House of Lords, House of Commons, and Westminster Abbey, DBR, because of that one slogan. People remembered it. Tell that story, and they get it. And that's what we're talking about, the power of the brand. Now, when this company called Cast came to me, Cast, they wasn't called Cast. They they were called E.C. Harris. And E.C. Harris was a very old brand, 150 years old, been taken over by a company called Arcadis. And Arcadis had bought E.C. Harris. And Mark Farmer came to see me and said, look, Steve, there's a problem. We got bought out. They told us they wouldn't change our culture. They've actually swallowed us up. They've got rid of all our identity. And we're numbers and we're not going to have it. We're going to go and start again. I want you to brand us and come up with a name. The trouble is, Steve, we can't use E.C. Harris. And one of the Harris family was with him, Ed Harris. He said, I can't use my name, we're done. I went, okay, we'll get on it. I started exploring because when they gave me the brief, they started telling me the story about, about, they look at the bigger picture they look at the bigger picture and they focus, they can really focus on that detail, what they see that no other company will, they'll find that thing. And I liked it because I use the analogy of a hawk, a fucking hawk, the hawk, the eye of the hawk, you can fucking, from miles above it can spot a fucking daddy longlegs and come down and nail it. And I went, we'll start off with the idea of a hawk. Now, because of my love of animals, we then discovered that there's only one hawk in the world that hunts in a pack. It hunts in a group. And that hawk, believe it or not, is called a Harris hawk. And the Harris hawk that hunts in a group is called a cast of hawks. A cast of hawks. It only represents one hawk, a cast, the Harris hawk. So we managed to get E.C. Harris's name back into the name of cast. The story is all around Hawks. The analogy is around Hawks. And we created this brand, which is now doing super, super well. Very Mr. Modular. He wrote the Farmer's Report and he's very much in these works with the housing minister. He's doing incredibly well. But it's always about, remember, your brand needs to be simple. It needs to be simple to be used. It needs to be transposable across all things make sure it works in black and white because black and white it must work in black and white as well color palette is key to so have an interesting color palette that you have a very nice palette that you can use for maybe different sectors and different offspins spins of the company enjoy the brand obviously Create a story, something authentic around the brand and the reason why that, that sort of that exists. But it's always about that thing about memorability. You want to make sure it's memorable. And if it's memorable, people will remember it. And why do they remember it? Because it's about being consistent. Don't chop and change it always keep your documents in the way that that logo is applied, whether it's in that corner or that corner, whether it's readable and that at the end of the day, May, it's always banging that drum that every time they see your brand, it's not, what is it? Who is it? They start to remember it because it is consistent and it's not difficult to do. It's just that you have to start with the right foundations in place to get that right. And so, You know, for us, it is always about keeping, uh, finding that authentic story. Get something to hang your hat on. When we've got that thing to hang your hat on, then we wrap it and brand it, create a formula, and then we're proud of it. Because remember, if you're proud of who you are, and every time you give your business card out, you're proud, trust me, you'll get business through the fucking roof. If all of a sudden you start saying to people, oh, yeah, uh, uh, don't look at my website because I'm not very really happy about it, but we're, we're going to work in on it and it'll happen. How the fuck are you going to win business? You can't. You need to be proud of who you are. And if even if you can't get to that stage of getting that all singing, all dancing website, just get a little simple presence, just a presence of who you are and what you are in the fewest words possible. And trust me, that'll be more... Beneficial to your brand, your company to bring more business than an all singing, all dancing, full of information that means absolutely nothing to anybody. So one of the funniest phone calls I ever got. Give me the thumbs up, Richard. Am I
0: okay for one more story? Or you not? are good to go, Steve. I'm loving this, and I can see from okay. the faces of okay. everyone here, okay. they're loving it too. Okay, thank you. So, so
1: I many years ago I get a phone call and I mentioned Fordham and Masons um, one of my team picks up the phone good East End boy his nickname was English he was called English because not even I could understand a fucking word that he said truly he was that East End and uh, he uh, he said he, he said I think he said I think it's a get up he said I think it's a get up I went what's the get up he went it's this old lady on the phone. She sounds 200 years old and she's from Fortnum and & Mason and the managing director wants to talk to you. So I went, okay, I'll see. And anyway, I get the phone. Hello,
0: is that Steve Edge?
1: I went, yes. She said, I've got Mr. Hamilton on the phone to you. He wants to talk to you. He's the managing director. One second. Anyway, very jolly chat comes on. Oh hello Steve. Um I'm Mr. Hamilton. I went, oh hello, Mr. Hamilton. He said, Steve, he said, you come highly recommended. I want you to help us. We're in trouble. I went, okay. He said, and we are in trouble, but you need to come and meet us. I went, okay, okay, Mr. Hamilton. Uh when do you want me to come to see you? He went, tomorrow. I went, all right, I'll see. one second. Let me uh, let me say anyway, because we never fucking diary in those days. I went, one second, I just asked it, you know, yeah, yeah we, yeah, we can well, yeah, I can come and see you. Um and, and, and so he said, great, looking forward to seeing you tomorrow. I said, okay, Mr. Hamilton, I need to ask you a question. I said, Mr. Hamilton, what's your first name? He went, Jerry. I went, can I call you Jerry? He went, no, I prefer it if you call me Mr. Hamilton. I went, in that case, Jerry, I'll call you Mr. Hamilton. Anyway, I went and met him. Now, it didn't take long before he became my mate. Then he was known as H. I fucking called him H. Anyway, I went into this boardroom. Upstairs on the fifth floor of Fortnum's is where every object in this room, this office, chandeliers, side tables, statues, have been donated by the royal family since 1707. And of course, the boardroom and all the board members are aristos like blue bloods with fucking nervous fucking twitches and oh. eyeballs like thoroughbred horses that come out from fucking different angles. You can't even believe they're looking at you. I keep going, are you fucking looking at me? Like, fuck, money, money. Anyway, so I'm in this room with all these aristos. Um, and, 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 and of course, they're all like the most famous names. Like you can't make it up, you know. From all those big hedge funds and all those big old brands, they're all there, they're fucking real people. So, so I'm talking to them and I'm talking about branding and what they need. And so, 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 so they go, fucking Lord Asquith, he says, Steve, he says, so what was your view then on Fort the Mason? And I went, Well, I said it's fucking fuddy duddy. I said it's boring, it's fucking tired. I said, you've stopped everybody from coming from the high street into it because you're all up your fucking ass and you think about that you're only it's 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 for all the blue bloods and people with money. I said, that's my view of it. He went and they all nodded, they're all fucking nodding. All these old birds with fucking big blonde fucking wigs on, and they're all They're all agreeing with me. Yes, Steve, you're right. You're right. We are up our ass. I went, yeah, you fucking are. I said, I said, and now you want to tell me you want to attract people from the high street to come into your store? They went, yes. I said, well. And then Jerry Hamilton, amazing guy, he's laughing. He's pissing himself laughing. He said, so Steve, he said, so how are we going to do it? How do we get people from the high street into our store? As I said earlier on in my spill, guys, fun. I said, fun. We need to make it fun. We need to stop people from, be- from being insecure, make sure they don't feel stupid, that they can't come in and ask what is pate de foie gras or fucking brandy butter. I said, you've got to make them that they feel comfortable when they come in this store, that they are having such an amazing time that it is for like, Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So he said, so what should we do? And of course, I'm fucking on my feet. You know, I'm the old Michael Caine is fucking whizzing in a meeting, as it always does. And, and I'm working. I said, well, we should choose a character, maybe a character that used to shop in Fortnum's when it first opened. Like maybe, maybe Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde loved luxury. He was a sybarite He loved the most luxurious things And I said, and these quotes were perfect for Fortnum and Masons. You know, he used to say, gold tipped cigarettes are so awfully expensive. I can only afford them when I'm in debt. (laughs) I fucking love that. We've all been there, right? Fuck it, I've got no money. Fuck it, I'll have it, right? Or he used to say, one can forgive anybody after a good meal, even one's own relatives. So, you know, he, he had all these quotes around food and Anyway, we created this whole story around this Oscar Wilde and bringing fun and making sure that we explained what products were, that you knew how to cook it and how to use it. We then came to the day when it was four months before Christmas, where four months before Christmas up until Christmas is where Fortnum and Mason make all their money for the whole year up until that month, four months before Christmas, average spend is eight quid. Tea. Fucking pot, pot of tea or some jam. That's, that it. That's it. Four months before Christmas, they make all their money. We had to work on their Christmas catalogue. We had to photograph everything from the Windsor hamper. Then, 20 years ago, three grand for a fucking hamper. Three grand right down to the Port and Stilton in the box, every product. So I said to Jerry Hamilton, H, I went, H, listen, mate. He said, how do we make this run smoothly? I said, in my studio, I want not just all the hampers sent of the days that I'm photographing them, but I want all spares of all the average products that are in them, i.e. the brandy butters, the port, the certain wines, I said, if they got scratch labels, I said, it's going to cause a big problem. We've got to wait for another one to come on a courier. I said, give me backup. So now we've got our own mini Fortnum & Mason in our studio. And this is a three-month photographic shoot, by the way. The shoot is three months. I've got 14 people, me, art directing it, creative directing it, and I've got photographers, stylists, food fucking cookers. I mean, I've got everything. And now we start on this photographing all this food. Every night, we come to the end of the night. I go, right, guys, choose a hamper that you want. Then fucking someone will choose the big one. Some are choose the little red riding hood hamper with the two bits open. And we put all the food that we photographed on all these hampers in the middle of the studio, and they'd all go round and they'd all pick what they wanted. I'll have the crew. Go on, and you have that. I'll have the fucking patty de foie gras. You have that. I'll have the smoked salmon. We go around. And of course, after two weeks of this, we all broke out in boils because we'd been living on a fucking baked beans on toast before that. So now all this rich food now, is like we're looking like fucking out of some horror movie. Anyway, we, we do this photographic shoot. The catalogues go out. I get a phone call. 24th of December. On the 24th of December, Mr. Hamilton wants to see you. Can you go and see him? Buck, I rock up at Fortnum's Christmas Eve. Jerry has got the biggest smile on his face. Jana Weston, of the Weston family who owned Fortnum's and Selfridges and Hills. Old man Weston's there as well. He created the wagon wheel, they owned all the seed banks in Canada. A wagon wheel. Remember the wagon wheel? When we were kids, fucking wagon wheel, it was like that big. They're now that big, right? They're like a fucking oro. Anyway, I I um, I go into this office and they're beaming. Steve, since 1707, we've never had such an uplift in products. We're 40% up than last year. We've never had such a jump. Yay! Get biggest round of applause they give me. Have a great Christmas. We're working with you next year. Thank you. Of course, I go home to my family. We've we've had a right load up. Can you imagine? Fucking here in Shoreditch. I'm like a mini Fortnum and Mason. We've got everything. We had the best Christmas. I come back on the 3rd. We get a phone call. One of my team answers it. I'm not there. Get in. You've got to go to Fortnum's immediately. They're not happy. What the fuck? What are you talking about? They're not happy. They're not happy. There's there's something wrong. Jerry's not happy. Anyway, I rock up at Fortnum's, go into this amazing room, the Royal Room. Jerry's sitting at one end of the table, H. Steve, he said, how was your Christmas? I went, fantastic, thanks. I said, it was one of the best Christmases ever. He said, good. He said, I need to ask you a question. I said, what is it? He said, we've just done a stock take. And we're, this is 20 years ago, and we're 67,000 pounds out. He said, do you know what's happened to it? I went, yeah, I know exactly what's happened to it. He went, what? I went, we fucking ate it. <laughs> he starts to laugh. He repeats back to me, you fucking ate it. I went, yeah, we fucking ate it. You never told me you wanted it back. <laughs> he laughs. He, he's uncontrollable. He stops himself. He says, now, listen. This must never leave the room. He said, I want you to do it this year, but will you promise me that you'll send all the food back? I mean, yeah, now I know you want it back, we send it back. Anyway, we had a right result. That year, we'd done 67 grams worth of food, got paid a lot, and had the best Christmas ever. And of course, you know, last but not least, remember that I've been very lucky. I found my passion when I was a kid, when I was four, like I said, you know, my glitter, magic markers and plastic scissors and things have never changed. I truly do skip into my studio every day, even now because my studio is next door to where I live. So luckily for me, it's it's kept me sane in this mad times because I love people. I love to be with people. For me, not to be with people is the worst thing ever. And I've actually, you know, I'm belly fucking no mates in my studio because luckily all my team can work from home and they're all doing an amazing job, but I really miss people. But one day we will be back. And so growing up, you know, in East London and having these moments when I've had these wonderful moments of realisation that I think one of the biggest realisations for me was when I was nine years old and. In all poor families, poor Jewish family. My mum, good Jewish woman. But growing up here in East End, we never had any money, but we had love, we had life, we had fun, never wanted anything. My dad would make it or paint it or whatever, but we, we grew up. I was so fucking happy. But at nine years old, in all poor families, you have a rich aunt, And we had a rich aunt. I had a fucking rich aunt, a really rich aunt. And I used to go round her house, and at nine years old, this time I went round her house, and she had cabinets full of china and cut crystal and glass. And I said to my aunt, when do you use all this? And she said, on special occasions. And a week later, she died, and she never used any of it, none of it, because she was waiting for a special occasion. And I said to my mum, I looked at my mum, when this happened, and I said, Mum, you know what? And I've got all elder brothers, so I always used to have the hand-downs, me but that's why I started making my own clothes. And I said, Mum, you know what? I said, as from this day, I'm gonna wear my best outfit. I'm gonna wear my party outfit every day. I said, because I'm not gonna wait for a special occasion. I'm gonna wear my best outfit, because trust me, the party will come to me. And so all I want you to do, guys, from now on, is dress for a party every day. Don't wait for an occasion get that little silver backless number on, get your white tuxedo on. Trust me, people will go, fuck, wow, you look fancy, what do you do? No, I'm going to dress for a party every day and the party will come to you. And that's always been my philosophy. And it's amazing, wherever I go, all around the world, I always get, every day I have a party, people come up and they want to talk to you. What do you do? And it's the answer to life. And it's been a real pleasure To see you all, and I can't see all of you, but I really hope one day that I will be able to meet you all and shake your hands and hug you, and uh, and have a proper chat and a proper drink. And thank you all very much for listening to me,
0: Steve. Steve, that was. Awesome, thank you so so much. I have never seen so many smiles, (laughs) laughing faces, uh, 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 faces of shock at some points as well, but thorough just engagement with everyone. It's been, I've, I've, I knew it was going to be good, and you way surpassed that, though. So, thank you so so much. Well, thank you very much, guys. If you want to see more of
1: my outfits, please go on my Instagram, Steve Edge, and uh. And you can see all my dodgy outfits every week that I'm wearing, um, by, by all means. And if any of you guys have any questions, um, email me on angel at steve com. Uh, uh, Richard and Nina have it. Um, and by all means, you know, or even pick the phone up and ring me. By all means, I'll, I, you know, we can, we, we can always talk.
0: Fantastic Steve thank you you're so so kind we've got a load of questions that have come in uh, whilst you've been talking do you have a bit more time for us to, to um, run some of those questions by you? of course a- amazing thank you Nina I'm going to pass over to you for a moment thank you I I Steve
3: I love you <laughs> I've been putting that in the message we love Steve we love Steve oh, thank we, you we were meant Steve was going to be speaking at our live event in London in May last year so we've been we, we were so excited to have him in person because we've watched so many of his talks online and listened to him on podcasts and just think guys how amazing it would be to see him in person. this is him on video <laughs> so we really can't wait um, for you to hopefully come back and, and see us all. And we can all, you know, when we can all hug again. <laughs> exactly,
1: darling, Exactly.
3: Um, I I love your philosophy, and and it's one that I certainly have always followed on on dress for a party every day. Um, it's uh, I three quarters of my wardrobe is is smart dress, and I really struggle to dress casually most of the time. Um, but in this world of in this video world living in, um. How it's so wonderful to see so many of our members here and we've missed so many of your faces and everyone dresses the part and it's great. How important is it for people to show up on these video calls and firstly, have their video on and secondly, make that first impression?
1: Well, darling, it's very important because remember, it's all about oneself. And what I said earlier on about the brand is exactly like you as a person. If your brand looks shit, you ain't going to get any business. If you look like shit, you're not going to feel good. And if you look good, you're going to feel good. You're going to be happy. And that energy is going to go out there. So I always say, you know, don't be lazy. Don't, you know, walk around in the fucking gray tracksuit that a lot of people do because they think that'll do. Well, it won't do. The key to it is if you look in the mirror, put that bit of lippy on and your fucking eye makeup and do your barnet and then put something on that you really feel that you, you fucking you look good, trust me, that energy is gonna take you out there that day and you're gonna perform and you're gonna enjoy yourself far more than being lazy in a grey tracksuit looking like shit because that's the reason why, you know, I know full well that dress for a party every day is the key to actually getting out there and enjoying life and people enjoying it around you as well.
3: Amazing, thank you. And what, just one more cheeky question from me. I, I know that you're a, a huge optimist, and um, and I, I was listening to a debate today from some really successful people, and they were debating as to the importance of whether, of, of what you say yes to. And someone was saying that that the older you get, the more selective you get, and they, they say no to more things, but listening to your wonderful story, the how many things you've just said yes to and gone with your instinct and you saying yes to joining us tonight, what, what is your opinion on 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 saying yes to things?
1: a lovely question, darling Nina it's so such a big thing that I talk about because. You know, <clears throat> there's a thing called a TED Talk and a Do Talk, Do Lectures. Do Lectures are brilliant. I've done these Do Lectures and I've done TED Talks. And what's interesting is about it is to be successful, you have to lose. You have to fail. Never worry about failing because the answer is you learn so much from fucking failing. And actually, also, when you say yes, yes. You push yourself. And times I've said yes to things and afterwards I think, oh, fuck, I've got to do it and I'm nervous and I've got to push myself and you know what, do it because afterwards the reward is so overwhelming, so great and that you will be successful because of saying yes. Um, You know, I, I remember one of my early talks, there's a thing in Toronto called Design Thinkers. And every so often, not every so often, every year, they ask somebody to do the keynote speak on Friday night, where it's like the world fucking comes to this event. Anyway, 8,000 people come to this event. And I remember getting there on a Wednesday, I'm talking on a Friday, seeing other people talking all the way through this. It's a creative called Design Thinkers in Toronto. And they're all amazing, all these talks. And I'm thinking, fuck. And of course, what was happening, everybody after every event throughout the day were coming up to me, who were the talker at that moment, going, Steve, thank you for sitting in and watching it, but I can't wait for yours. And I'm just thinking, shit, this is like, oh my God, I'm going to sit in front of 8,000 people. Everybody's saying, I'm going to be better than that. I'm better than that. In the end, I was thinking, here we go. And of course, when you when you get on that side of that big stage and there was all the studio managers were all mic'd up and everybody's giving me, counting me down, 10, 9, 8, here we go, get on, it's like, whoa, your bottle goes, but once you get out there and you, because you said yes, embrace yes, you have to embrace it, you can't half embrace it, when you say yes, fucking do it properly, or don't do it at all, and I went out there and of course, luckily for me, I had 8,000 new fucking Canadian friends, all fucking cheering and shouting, so, but they never heard ever in their life, apparently. So, you know, it it, it, it kind of worked. But yeah, say yes.
3: I love that. Because you
1: will regret it if you say no.
3: Thank you, that's amazing. I'm going to bring up um, one of our members, Stephen, um, who's going to come up to the stage. I'll just ask you to unmute, Stephen, to ask you a question.
2: Hi, good evening, Steve. That was uh, absolutely brilliant talk. Uh-huh. Absolutely super. I have so much admiration for people that can see the big picture and then focus in on as on a, to bring out a, a brand as you've done s- successfully so often. It, I, I've I worked in marketing as as a marketing director at Honda for a while, and, oh, wow. and and we did a lot of work around brand. and And it brings me on on to my question because one of the things you you know really important on brand is consistency. Consistency, consistency, consistency. Uh, and so my question to you is, for us, we did an awful lot of work about company culture. The culture of Honda as a business was very important to us and how we then explain that to to our public. Do you work on the company culture? Because you have a a distance between what you're trying to do with your brand and the culture of the business. It, it, it's it's <laughs> going to be like a paper thing. It's going to a paper tiger. It's going to disappear very quickly, isn't it?
1: Stephen, you know, it's very interesting, mate. I mean, and I love Honda, mate. I, I just recently bought a Honda monkey bike, the new one, <laughs> which is beautiful, 125. I love it. It's a little jewel. And, of course, you're amazing, you know, sorry, what you stand for, incredible dream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
2: the power of dreams. The
1: power of dreams, right. So
2: Great great line.
1: A great line, mate. And I, and, and I love that. And, and of course, but, yes, you know, I'm I'm... I'm the one that comes up with the big ideas in my company. Uh, But I have a team of strategic people as well, Stephen. So we have workshops where we sit and I can't be in those meetings because I can't fucking sit still for one second while all that strategy asking about all that stuff that we've just spoken about the culture, you know, who are you all that, you know, I, I sit in it for a bit, but yes, it's so important. So, so when, so before we uh, uh, work on a brand, mate, as as I said, it's not just about a pretty picture, Stephen. it's about all that stuff, you know, all that strategy to get that strategy, right. And once we've got that strategy, then we've got those foundations, true authentic foundations to wrap it and build something to hang our hat on and then create an identity around what you've just said, the truth of the culture.
2: Yeah. Perfect. Can I ask you one more question? Please. What, and this is a bit left field. What would your advice be to Prince Harry tonight? Or today?
1: I, I've not watched the news today. What happened to Harry? Well,
2: he's just doing... He, he's just creating a whole new career for himself in America. And create, separating from the royal family. And, and he's creating his whole, whole... He needs a brand. He needs an identity. said. He certainly
1: needs an identity, mate, being a ginger, right? He fucking definitely needs, uh, he, 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 he definitely needs an identity. Um, but you know what? I mean, there's a side of me, you know, I love the Queen. I love the Queen. I, I um, uh, 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 you know, growing up here in this part of London and, and, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm half Irish, I'm half Jewish. My wife is half Indian, half French. she's actually French. I've got five children. You can imagine the gene pool within my children, you know. So, you know, uh, 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 I love what he's done, Harry. Um, And I think he's been very brave. And I think that he's actually, you know, well, been very, very brave, actually, to tell you the truth, because it it must be incredibly difficult, especially when when all my family love watching these programmes called The Crown. (laughs) <laughs> and you just think, what the fuck? Do you seriously want to be around that lot? So I can see why he's giving it the elbow and done a runner to America, to tell you the truth, with a very nice wife. She seems a very, she seems a very nice person. And I think that mm. they, 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 they seem perfect for each other. So, so hopefully he will you know be happy and the pair of them will be okay. And they seem to be winning against these hideous papers like the Mail on Sunday and all that Hideous fucking papers that you only seem to, what Tunbridge Wells people read. You know that fucking type. So, you know, hopefully, uh, hopefully, it's going to be good.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you, Stephen. (laughs) Thank
3: you. So um, next up, we have um, Jose from uh, Germany. He's going to come on and speak to you. Wow. I'm not sure if
0: I pronounce your name right there. I'm so sorry. hey Nina, Nina, I'm okay. Uh, Jorge is actually I live in Germany but I'm from Slovenia. It's okay. It's okay. Jorge. Thanks so. Jorge, yes. It's a good hey, night, uh, Steve. So nice to meet you. I have had uh, questions, tons of questions, but since we live here in Munich, be my guest next time at Oktoberfest. Uh, Be my guest. We will drink all the beer. I will suck all your knowledge and uh, we will have great, great time. But Nina and Richard, thank you so much for uh, bringing this amazing, amazing human being to this panel. Thank you so much. It's really, it was nice. Thank you so much, guys.
1: Thank you very much indeed. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
3: Okay, great. We're going to bring um, Shavon up next. Let me just unmute you, Shavon. Oh, hi, Steve. Oh my gosh, this this evening has literally been the <laughs> highlight of my day. Your energy, your energy is just magnetic. So thank you so much for. Thank
1: energy. you, Shavon. Thank you, darling. I love I love where you are, darling. What an incredible backdrop you got.
3: There. I wish I was there. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I was just really curious to know at 17 when you were presented with these massive opportunities, how did you stay humble? Done I mean, because I came from nothing.
1: We never had a penny, we, we had no money, and therefore everything was an opportunity. So when I discovered literally glitter, magic mongrels, and plastic scissors, I was so fucking happy. That I was in my own little bubble in my own world, and actually i 've always liked people, and people have always liked me and so that 's how I grew up. I just get on with people i 'm passionate about what I do. I found myself in these great opportunities because, as what Nina was saying, I said yes, you know um, and actually, you know I was just just incredibly for myself felt so fortunate that I was working with these amazing people um, and that that whatever I did, it worked, it was good. So I was lucky, darling, that I was good at what I did as well. So I kind of was very fortunate that I can create ideas all day long. I can think of all sorts of twists and turns. I never dry out and it was a gift and definitely because of my dyslexia with this severe form and with slight autism and OCD that actually it's looked after me in the bubble of what you've just asked me about, that I just, I, I just live and, and, and wake up every morning excited to see what's going to happen. Thank you very much for that. Thank you.
3: Thank you. So we have one last question um, because I'm very conscious of your time, Steve. Um, I'm going to bring Kitty up now. Kitty's also in branding. Come on up, Kitty.
4: Hi, Steve. So lovely to meet you tonight. And
1: Where are you, Kitty? Can I see you? Are you waving?
4: Oh, hi. I'm here. Can you hear me? I
1: can hear you, Kitty. I can right. hear
4: you. you can't see me, though.
1: I've got, see, I'm an iPad and and I've only got... That's okay. I'm
4: probably right down at the bottom of the list, but really lovely. Thank you so much for your presentation today. And um, obviously I'm in branding. I've been in over 20 years. So I've worked behind fashion retail brands. So I was um, managing at Ted Baker for 10 years and then I rebranded Cath Kidson for six years and open stores globally and stuff. But you're like the voice in my head. And it's absolutely amazing. And um, just wanted to um, ask you a question. Obviously, I have my own business now. I work from home. Um, but what, how, how have you dealt with difficult clients when you've briefed them in something, you, you know, they know what they want, but then you start designing and then they say, actually, they kind of think they know better. How have you dealt with difficult clients like that?
1: We fuck them off out of it, Kitty. <laughs> I mean, a, a, a bit lively, darling, because look, what's interesting that, there's a few things, and Kitty, it's a really interesting question, you know, as everybody's uh, 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 question, you know. Um, what's interesting about creativity is that as soon as you... They come to me because they have a blank sheet of paper, but as soon as we put anything on it, they all become fucking experts. Oh, I wouldn't do that if I was you. I fucking, can we change that? Everybody thinks they can fucking have some input, into a thing they don't fuck all about. So I say to them, hang on a second, when you get your fucking end of year accounts, do you say to your accountant, oh no, fucking change those figures, move that, they go, no, I go, well exactly. So what, you fucking think it's all right that you don't do that to your accountants, but to us as branders, you all of a sudden know because you can see something that we've created. So I'm very strong Kitty in the boardroom because what we bring back is formulas when we look in at conceptual ideas of a brand, I usually bring back three ideas, three ideas that, you know, three different logos, three different bits of typography, three colour palettes, which is a kind of a semi-mix-and-match system. But like I always say, darling, when before we work with people, I always tell them we don't design by committee because the thoroughbred horse becomes a camel real fucking quick. So, if you want to work with us, you can look at our portfolio, you can look at all our success, but we will bring you a brand that you'll be proud of. But, like you said, difficult clients, mate, we fuck them off out of it.
4: <laughs> Great answer. Thank you so much, Steve. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Steve.
1: Thank you,
0: darling. <laughs> Steve. Th- thank you so much. It's, I, I again, I mean, I just, I've had the biggest smile on my face this evening. I, I said at the beginning that I've been looking forward to tonight and I just, I knew it was going to be so much fun. Well, and thank you. It, it, it's, it's, the pleasure is all ours. I have a couple of questions for you, if I may. I'm mindful of time, but I, I've, I've limited it just to two, Steve. And The first one is, what's the best bit of business advice you've ever received? The best... Bit of business
1: advice, sorry, the best piece of business advice I've ever been given was that when I finished the film industry, George Lucas had a party, a dinner party for me. And he sat me next to John Paul Getty Jr. And he was sitting there, this big fucking American man. And I never knew that, I, I, I fucking, I'm, you know, I'm a kid, like 23. 21 and 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 so he said hey kid he said i hear you're uh, i hear you're gonna do your own thing and i went yeah i am he said i hear you. okay kid he said he said i'm gonna tell you three things now three things for you when you set up your own business i went okay he said number one when you got your team together make sure you're in before the team rocks up you're the captain of the ship man You need to be in control. They need to respect you. You need to be there before they rock up. I went, okay, thank you, Mr. Getty. He said, number two. He said, you're going to stay to the end of the day. Make sure everybody leaves before you go, because then they'll see that you're still the captain of the ship and you're the man in charge. doesn't matter if you're one minute after they go. You just make sure you're there. I went, thank you very much, Mr. Getty. And he kind of had a bit of a silence. He paused. And I went, well, what about number three? He went, number three, kid, the most important thing of all. He said, you've got to strike oil, kid. You've got to strike oil. Now, to me, it wasn't necessarily the thing about it. It was, meta. it was a metaphor, he was telling me. In other words, you can work your bollocks off for the rest of your life. Fucking hard work but you've got to find that one thing that you're good at, that one bit of treasure, find the oil. And if you can find the oil, that's the answer. And when he said that to me, I thought, yeah, I'm going to go and find that thing that I was lucky because it was that about communication. It was me being severely dyslexic, and I know how information comes into me. And I knew that if I could bring that in a brand to make it clear and simple and throw one ball and be inspirational and lateral, not literal, that I knew that would be the answer. And for me, that was the oil that I found that I would bring, rather than just slogging away at something that's not working. And and that's, I think for me, mate, was, sorry, long-winded question, but that answer, but that was it.
0: that's brilliant, thank you. And Steve, my my last question. Uh, There's a lot of companies that are doing incredibly well since um, COVID-19, this pandemic but there's a lot of companies that are feeling that they're in a bit of a slump and a bit of a rut. What do those companies need to do to sort of grab themselves by the behind and just shove themselves into this new world?
1: It's a very good question, mate. And, and how lucky that, you know, there's companies that can work from home. And luckily, I'm sure a lot of you guys, hopefully you've been able to work from home and your teams work from home. But we know... There's a lot of companies that haven't been able to work from home and hospitality and food and beverage and restaurants, you know, um, but, you know, for me, going back to people want to be around people that I really believe that this, when this, when we will be living with this pandemic for a fucking long time, right, but we're going to get used to living with it. We're gonna learn how to do business with it. We're gonna be able to go back out again. We're gonna have vaccines. We're gonna you know, maneuver in a pandemic way that we know that you know, we'll, we'll get used to this. And once it becomes the norm, then we'll all be back out. We know that the economy will bounce back. This is not a recession because of money that went bad in the beginning. This is a recession because of a pandemic. And we know that people want to do business with each other and they can't wait to do business with each other and they can't wait to get back out again. But one thing that's come from this, which has surprised me, which is so true, and we're using it, is this, we are in a true digital world. So actually, we're going to bounce back far more efficient when, of course, we need to do the deal to shake the hand, to look people in the eye, give them a hug and make sure they're not fucking dodgy when we sit around the table. That business, we will, that will come back again. And we know we want to be around. People want to be with people. But when it comes to presenting work and showing spreadsheets, and we can work anywhere in the world, and we can be now competing with any huge organization. Because before, we couldn't compete with those big corporates. Now we can, because they're all in the same boat. We're all going to be looking at, on screens, doing business from one boardroom to another boardroom, in a different country, in a different part of the world, in a different part of, uh, 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 I'm sorry, um, UK. It doesn't matter. So we're now, we're on an equal playing ground now with all these big corporates. So I think there's gonna be far more opportunities. We're gonna come back where people wanna do business again. It will come back. And I think, you know what? For a while, it will be a better place because we've all, everybody's suffered. And when we come back again, there will be true understanding, great camaraderie, and we'll fucking celebrate together.
0: Awesome. Amazing. Steve, brilliant. And thank you. What a wonderful way to finish. Thank you so much for bringing such inspiration, such fun. I, I personally have never had so much fun on an online event. And I think I can speak on behalf of the other people that are in the audience this evening because I've never seen so many laughing, smiling faces, nodding throughout. It's been full of energy and just a wonderful, wonderful guy. Thank you so much for sharing all of this with us this evening. Richard, look, there's a baby. Mohammed has a baby,
1: the most beautiful baby. Have you seen the baby?
3: So just kidding me, we have two babies on the call, Steve, that are loving listening to you. Luckily, oh, they can't quite understand you yet, no, but, you know.
1: <laughs> guys, thank you all very much. We will meet one day.
0: In, indeed. And, and, Steve, to, to, to close for me, someone once said to me, we were talking about you, and they said, we could all do with being a bit more like Steve Edge every day. Aww. And do you know what? I, I, never a truer word spoken. I think that's something that we can all take with us this evening. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you all very much, mate. Lots Thanks, of love to you all. Well, that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about what we do or to get to know us, please visit inspiredequity.com. Join us on our next show for more interactive property discussions. Until then, I wish you good health and continued success. Go out there and be inspired.